0: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. Before we get to today's show, I just want to say that we are going to be hosting a long, wonky, in-depth conversation with Martin Wolf, the FT's chief economics commentator, about his new book, The Shift and the Shocks, in a couple of weeks. And we'd like to solicit your questions for Martin. And if you give us a call at 917-551-5012, we'll play your call on the episode and he'll respond to it. Or you can email us at alphachat at FT.com. Finally, you can also try me on Twitter. I'm at Cardiff Garcia. But for now, let's get on to today's show. First up, will they or won't they raise rates? The Federal Reserve meets next week to decide, and we're going to cover the potential implications with the FT's Robin Wigglesworth and Sam Fleming. And then John Authors, the FT's chief investment commentator, will be interviewing Andrew Ang of BlackRock to discuss sovereign wealth funds and a host of other topics. Next week on September 17th, the Federal Reserve will decide whether or not to begin raising interest rates up from zero or more precisely from near zero, where they have been for roughly the last six years. But comments by Fed officials' recent turmoil in global financial markets and a contradictory mix of economic indicators have made it very hard to know whether the time is right. I'm joined in the studio by Robin Wigglesworth, the U.S. Markets Editor of the Financial Times, and on the line making his Alpha Chat debut is Sam Fleming, U.S. economics editor of the FT, which also makes him our Fed watcher in chief. Sam, your first time on the show, so you get to be put on the spot first. You recently wrote that essentially we can't know what the Fed's going to do just by looking at the relevant economic indicators. So why don't you take us through some of those indicators and what the Fed is saying about them?
2: Yeah, the Fed has uh, consistently been saying it's data dependent, so it's going to look very strongly at the economic indicators, and that ought to give a pretty good guide as to how its policy is going to evolve. Unfortunately, as you said, Cardiff, the economic indicators have been fairly mixed. Uh, On the uh, activity side, you've had good, strong growth numbers. For instance, the second quarter growth figures were recently revised up to uh, 3.7% annualized growth. That's a really good number. On the jobs uh, data, as we all know, the U.S. labor market is doing extremely well. Uh, unemployment now half its uh, recession time peak of 10%. It's now 5.1%. Uh, percent. That's very close, if not at the Fed's current assessment of where full employment is in the U.S. economy. And the Fed's models say that once you're at full employment, inflation and wages ought to follow down the line, so you should be thinking about starting to normalize monetary policy. The problem is set against that. A very, very, very subdued inflation picture. Persistent overestimates of inflation by the Fed in recent times. Core inflation, which strips out food and energy, and it's the uh, measure the Fed looks very closely at, uh, is just 1.2%. That's well below the Fed's 2% target. It could indeed fall lower given the declines in oil prices we've had and other commodity prices recently. Uh, so there's some very thick, mixed uh, signals for the Fed. On one side, they have this uh, employment goal, maximum unemployment. That seems to be nearly met. Inflation, on the other hand, really quite a long way off.
1: It's a, a quick follow-up on that because you mentioned that the unemployment rate had now fallen to within the Fed's estimate for the sort of natural, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, the natural unemployment rate. Yeah. But that is quite an amorphous figure, that estimate itself changes, it evolves over time. And I guess what I want to know is to what extent do you think Janet Yellen is using some other complementary labor market indicators such as wage growth uh, in order to assess whether or not we're really at the point where low unemployment is going to lead to a lot of wage growth and subsequent inflation after that?
2: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. She does look at a whole range of labor market indicators and there are clearly issues with using headline unemployment as your main Indicator given uh, it doesn't capture all the slack that there is in the labour market. There are plenty of people who are just not actively uh, listed as seeking work and therefore aren't counted as job seekers. Uh, if you include some of those people, an alternative measure of unemployment, they call the U6 measure, which includes, for instance, people who are working part-time but who say they'd like to work full-time, there is actually more slack in the labour market and that's one of the more difficult things that, and controversial things that Fed policymakers need to weigh up when they consider what to do with interest rates. Wages, as you alluded to, are extremely low, persistently low. Um, the ECI, which is one measure of wages, um, has remained lower than the Fed expected. Weekly earnings, which is the monthly reading that we get along with the labour market statistics, have also been very low, 2.2% annual rate of wage growth. When you talk to policymakers like John Williams of the San Francisco Fed, he says that uh, at a time of full employment, you'd expect uh,
1: those measures to be going up 3 3.5%. Three so we're quite way behind that still. Robin, there's a kind of intriguing international dimension to what's happening right now and specifically to how it might affect what the Fed is planning on doing, not just next week, but in the months to come. We've obviously had a lot of recent markets turmoil, whether that's down to what's happening in China or other geopolitical issues. It's sort of an open question. But I guess what I want to ask you is whether or not the Fed should have a kind of cosmopolitan interpretation of what's happening here. Should the Fed be concerned with the fact that some of this turmoil has also affected U.S. markets? And should that have some kind of an impact on what it does next week?
3: Well, I think they worry about markets. They possibly worry too much. But it's clear that they are extremely concerned about what happens internationally. I mean, the last time, let's say, take a Fed right hiking cycle in 1994, the rest of the developing world was around sort of 10, 15, 20 percent, depending on how you can calculate it, of global GDP. You know, the developing world now is over half the global economy. So what there, happens there clearly doesn't just stay there. So the U.S. economy is quite possibly strong enough that you know it might not be dragged into recession if China and the rest of the developing world has a bit of a, a tough spot, but it's clearly not going to help. It's going to be a big headwind. And I think yeah, Fed members in the market are certainly more concerned about what happens to the Chinese economy than what happens really to the Chinese stock market, which is a bit of a, frankly, you know, to put it kindly, a casino.
1: Sure, but some Fed officials did acknowledge... What was happening? And some of them even said that, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the stock market decline, for instance, they were saying, hey, look, I think the case for raising in September might not be as convincing as it was even a week or two ago. Do you think that's appropriate for them to be commenting that directly on the extent to which they're influenced by – Global markets activity.
3: Well, it's clear that they've always been worried about the wealth effect. They care more about stock markets than they really care about bond markets in some cases. And you know, it's natural that they'd worry about you know the first correction in U.S. stock markets for a very long time. Whether I think they should, I mean, I think frankly, you know, we should probably get back to the point where the markets fear the Fed rather than the other way around. Right now, we have this sort of bizarre environment where the markets have a bit of a hissy fit. The Fed desperately tries to calm down every time. And frankly, I should think they should man up and do what they think is right for the <laughs> fundamental underlying economy and ignore what the S&P 500 happens to be doing that
1: week or that month. Okay. Sam, I don't know if this will be harder for the Fed to ignore, but global policymakers, multilateral institutions, they all obviously have their own strong opinions on what they should do. The IMF, the World Bank, have said quite aggressively that the Fed should wait, you know, and maybe even until the start of next year, do you think they have a point? Let me back up. Why don't you take us through their case for it and then give us a sense on whether or not the Fed will take that argument seriously?
2: Well, there are different arguments, at least publicly, from the World Bank uh, and the IMF. The IMF's case has been more driven by uh, the domestic situation in the U.S. and, in you know, in fact, to be fair – to The IMF, the Fed has to be driven by uh, domestic U.S. economy considerations above all, even though it's well aware that it has, its policy has huge ramifications for global uh, economies as well. The IMF's case is that uh, Christine Lagarde expressed this Ankara, in Ankara meetings over the weekend at the G20 level, that there's a risk that the Fed moves too soon and will have to reverse course, and that's not a good thing for a central bank to have to do. And we've seen an awful lot of central banks in recent times including uh, the Risk Bank in Sweden and the ECB in Euroland having to do that. The argument basically being the US economy isn't there yet, it's too soon to tighten policy. The World Bank case pressed to the FT earlier this week uh, is more to do with the risks to emerging markets of a tightening in US policy rippling back, affecting their currencies, triggering capital outflows and creating, in the the World Bank view, uh, an emerging markets crisis. Those are the arguments there. Then you do have, on the other hand, as we featured in the paper today, some emerging market uh, players, uh, central bankers, saying, actually, the biggest problem at the moment is the sheer uncertainty, the will they, won't they, that we're getting from the Fed and have been getting from the Fed, blowing hot and cold the whole year. Frankly, we'd just like to see some resolution of this. If the U.S. economy is strong enough to weather a rate, rate increase, then the Fed should do it. The Fed clearly doesn't want to, if it's in the middle of a major bout of volatility like 1,000 point drops in the Dow, that's not a great day to raise interest rates. I think we can all agree on that. But if the volatility calms down a bit, then they will very much look through the volatility and try
1: and take a longer-term view of where the economy is going. Sure. And just to explain to our listeners a little bit the very basics of how this works, on the one hand, if the Fed raises rates, it might trigger capital outflows out of some emerging markets and notably out of China because higher rates in the U.S. are attractive. On the other hand, the dollar would strengthen. And for a lot of emerging markets, that's quite an attractive thing as well, because it makes their products cheaper. So you have these kind of two opposing forces. Robin, I was intrigued by the fact also that the FT in the span of a week wrote two articles about what emerging markets policymakers think. One article said, oh, no, what if the Fed raises rates? It's going to lead to turmoil. Just today, Thursday, we have an article saying, well, actually, quite a few emerging markets policymakers want the Fed to raise rates. So how do we balance those two things?
3: Reminds me of St. Augustine, Lord, make me chaste, but not now. And I think emerging markets know that this is inevitable, and some of them are perhaps wisely – more inclined to sort of get this over with, and others are quite rightly panicking what the impact will be i mean it 's quite true that you know cheaper currencies make you know, helps these countries rebalance and maybe get regain some export competitiveness that, that they 've lost but that 's a slow haul in the meantime. many of them have borrowed money in dollars, and anyway there 's a lot of foreign money that 's flowed into these local bond markets have swelled over the past decade, two decades since last emerging markets crisis. And if that money seeps out of the local bond markets, now, you know, it's not going to cause an old school 1998 you know, currency peg getting snapped, you know, hard default, IMF goes in, all hell breaks loose. But, you know, it'll still be extremely painful when, like, for example, in Mexico and Malaysia and some of these countries, even solid countries, a good third or half of the local bond market is made up of foreign investment. If only 10% of that leaves, that really can crash a currency and that can really cause a lot of pain domestically.
1: Okay, I want to, Shift to the realm of the hypothetical for a minute now. Let's say the Fed does raise rates, and whatever the reaction of the markets, it seems like it might have been premature. There is a slowdown in the economy later on, maybe more than what we thought. The labor market wasn't as strong as we expected. I want to talk about what the Fed's options are at this point. Sam, first to you, one of Janet Yellen's first innovations was to come in and say, well, look, it's not just when we start raising rates, it's also the subsequent path of rates. Do you think there's a chance that when the Fed finally does raise rates, that it'll be accompanied with something new, some kind of a statement reinforcing that earlier notion that the path of rates still doesn't, you still don't know anything about what the path of rates is going to be just by the fact that we've hiked in September or October or December or whatever?
2: Well, all the way through the year, and especially starting really with a speech uh, that she made in San Francisco in the first half of the year, Janet Yellen has emphasized gradualism as being the uh, the other half in a sense of the guidance the Fed is giving. The first, first rate hike probably be a quarter point, and then after that, rates will go very, very slowly. Individual policymakers makers have then given their idea of what gradualism uh, might be, but um, the, the general view is certainly it's Uh, at least half the rate uh, of speed that we saw in the last hiking cycle in 2004. There's some complex things going on here, though, because the Fed wants, in a sense, to have its cake and eat it. It wants to say it's gradual, but it also doesn't want to be predictable, even though gradualism, in a sense, is is a way of trying to guide the markets as to what to expect. What it doesn't want to do is create a very, very predictable series of rate hikes like we saw under Alan Greenspan from 2004-2006, because it sees that that kind of predictability is stoking up uh, financial market imbalances and being risky. So the question, obviously, then is what what kind of guidance could we get in the statement? I think it, it is possible that we'll get some sort of wording along the lines of gradualism, um, some new wording saying that f- subsequent rate hikes will be very, very very slow because what we don't want to see is a very rapid uh, pricing in of a sharp uh, hiking cycle uh, by the markets, a sort of new taper tantrum style scenario which then could lead to uh, bad things for economic activity in the US as well as for the financial markets. There's also the possibility that the, the Fed could reverse course If the economy doesn't weather a small quarter point rate hike very well. Um, They've alluded to this in speeches uh, as to whether they'd actually formally say that in a statement, I think, is less likely.
1: Okay, Robin, Sam mentioned the Greenspan years. How worried are you that we're going to end up with another conundrum, so to speak, where if the Fed hikes rates early and it does lead to inflows into the U.S., that a lot of that will go to the long end? You end up with a flatter yield curve. And some of the hoped-for effects of the rate rise in the first place will be offset by the fact that longer rates will still remain low. They won't follow short rates up.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, this is already starting, really, it's sort of a conundrum 2.0. We've seen the long-end fall. We've seen the, the yield curve flatten. And, you know, most investors I've spoken to expect that to continue. It's just the, the sense is that the Fed might you know, tighten in the short end, but it can't really control the long end, which is set by some long-term economic growth cycles and inflation yeah, fundamentals. Yeah, so exactly. And personally, I think that's a little bit dangerous because as the Fed has said several times, various officials that they consider monetary policy to be set across the curve, not just on the short end. Especially these days, with so much financing happens in the bond market, so they want to engineer a steeper curve. Now, right now, markets are blowing raspberries at that. We're seeing the long end come down quite dramatically. But I rather suspect that if the Fed is – if it's something that it really wants, so that the Fed tends to get it. It has a $4 trillion balance sheet. And if it really wants to start using that to engineer steeper longer end curves, then, you know, it can try. Then it they call, might cause can. some accidents, but it can sure. certainly try.
1: So, but the, this, is, this is an interesting point. Sam, the mechanics of actually raising rates, the Fed has a number of options. It, it can use the reverse repo rate, interest on reserves – For now, I think it's still saying that the federal funds rate is the policy rate. But there's been so much discussion about how the Fed will go about normalizing monetary policy, how, if at all, it will reduce its balance sheet in the course of raising rates. We don't yet know exactly how it's going to do it. It's possible that the Fed itself is still deliberating how it's going to do it. And I guess I'm wondering if that is itself a potential excuse for delaying a rate hike by an extra meeting or two because it hasn't yet decided the path it's going to take.
2: Yeah, interesting question. One quick point on what Robin was saying. In terms of the long end, I guess if they were talking about if you set taper tantrum versus conundrum against each other, I suspect the the Fed would rather take the conundrum than the taper tantrum. I think that uh, that's clearly uh, the bigger bigger risk going into this meeting. In terms of what they do with their balance sheet, there is, I think, an argument for the Fed just to do a quarter point to see whether it can execute this, whether it can actually steer uh, the Fed funds rate in the way that it wants to, because, as you say, they're using untested tools a whole new toolkit because there are so many reserves in the system they can't use the mechanisms that they would have used in the, in the old normal the, the pre-crisis era the big question then is how quickly do they start allowing their balance sheets to reduce in size it's I think the guidance we've got from people like Bill Dudley the New York Fed president is they're going to wait a while after moving the Fed funds rate to see how that beds in before then starting to allow a natural runoff of the balance sheet. Everything they've said suggests that they don't want to actually actively sell down their portfolio. The reason for that is because it really could be quite seismic for financial markets if this $4 trillion portfolio suddenly thought people could start going onto the market uh, rapidly rather than very predictably, which it will do because under a normal sort of normalization profile where you can actually see what the maturity of these bonds are so you can predict how quickly they'll come back on. To the market, so I think it's obviously a tool that's in, at their disposable Disposal active sales of bonds, but I think the first uh, port of call will be to wait a while after the Fed funds rate is raised a quarter point. You know, potentially even a year or so and then gradually allow a runoff of the portfolio over periods of time. There's a question as to whether they might want to smooth the path of that runoff rather than just allowing a kind of jagged redemption cycle based on just whatever random maturities they have in the portfolio. Um, but that's a slightly more technical issue.
1: Okay, Robin, what do you think? How worried should we be that this process of normalization is going to have unintended or even perverse consequences on financial markets?
3: Well, it's going to be fascinating and this will be sort of one of the most experimental liftoffs we've ever really had the feeling among sort of the sell side analyst community and investors is that you know the fed if it wants to raise rates to a certain level fed funds it will be able to do so but in the pushing and pulling of all these different levers there could be many unintended consequences and we'll just have to wait to see what they are and they could be fairly minor, or they could be quite significant. I mean, the money market fund industry could be quite severely affected by this if you know, they have you know, expanded all the counterparty lists, include lots of money market funds. So it'll be interesting to see how that acts. And in the longer run, I agree, I mean, the, the, what the Fed does with its balance sheet is going to be of, of huge importance. I mean, don't forget, we also, just by ending reinvesting of coupons, and the, the Fed is making money All the time through all these $4 trillion of bonds and reinvesting that in the market. And that's been a huge source of demand for treasuries, even though QE has ended. But the combination of, let's say, China selling some of its treasuries to finance interventions in the currency markets or things it has to do domestically. Typically, central banks hold most of their money in the short end. But the Chinese central banks, the Chinese authorities, have a lot in the long end as well, just because of the sheer amount of their holdings. And they're most likely to sell the long end. And at the same time, you have less demand coming from the Fed if they taper down these reinvestments. And you have the Treasury also you know, saying they're going to issue more long-dated debt. So that's how, for example, we might see a steeper yield curve. I think in the long end, it's where the, it smells a bit of complacency at the moment.
1: Okay, I want to close with a final, very broad question, and it's for both of you, actually. It kind of seems like right now the big... Global forces are all disinflationary for the U.S. So stronger dollar, the productivity gains in shale and the oil and commodity sector and the broader slowdown in emerging markets growth as well. And obviously, Europe remains quite stagnant. To what extent do you think this is going to affect monetary policy, not just in the next month or three months or whatever, because obviously there's a sense in which we're exaggerating the importance of whether or not they do it next week versus later, versus you know six weeks or 12 weeks from now. But how is this going to affect monetary policy in the years to come? How does this overlap with other bigger themes of stagnation, whether that's secular stagnation, technological stagnation, whatever? How does monetary policy handle this? Sam, huge question. You're first.
2: I suppose on one level, you can see how the Fed uh, views the longer-term outcome from projections by Fed-owned policymakers, and those are that they think the terminal rate, the final rate they're going to end up on is a lot lower than you would have expected in the past. So they're beginning to take on board these disinflationary forces, global disinflationary forces that you're talking about. At The same time, we have a Fed that's an institution which is driven by economic models. It takes these very seriously. It believes in the Phillips curve. It believes that uh, once you know, we reach full employment, wages and inflation will follow. Unfortunately, the evidence is not there so far to support that contention in any way whatsoever. Um, So that's a bit of a problem for them. And they need to figure out how to balance these forces. I think, yeah, I mean, the the supposition underlying your question is, will monetary policy have to remain looser than in the past for a longer period of time? Absolutely. I think that seems a a fairly safe assumption. And really, what the Fed is talking about is a very, very, very incremental tightening in monetary policy in the US. So, yes, I I agree. These disinflationary forces, the, the kind of stagnation we're seeing, the uh, potential for the natural rate, the, you know, the natural rate which, uh, which is consistent, interest rate which is consistent with full employment and uh, stable inflation could be much lower than it was in the past. That certainly is a, an important view within the Fed as well, all leading us to, to believe that normalization such as it is will involve much lower
3: interest rates in the past.
1: Robin, equilibrium rates low forever or what? Well, okay, so
3: to be sort of the devil's advocate, I'll take the other side of that then. I think people have a, t- a tendency to over-extrapolate from the recent past, and frankly, for the past 20, 30 years, the path has been disinflation in the U.S. and globally, well, apart from the old spurts here in the commodity supercycle. But I just don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that food prices start rising next year. Oil prices goes up to 18, 90 bucks a barrel and you know, suddenly you have a bit of inflation. You have unemployment well below 5%, given that you know, the economy is like a super tank. It takes time to turn around. So the unemployment rate in the U.S. is going to be heading down. You're going to have inflation above target. You're going to have some frothiness in financial markets. And, you know, maybe, let's say, people have ignored the first few rate hikes. I think the Fed could quite possibly go. I mean, the idea that interest rates will never go above 3.75% again sounds ridiculously complacent to me. Now, I'm not saying this is the most likely outcome. But I think that people are underestimating the chances that this isn't a new normal, this time isn't different, that we could very easily have a bit of an inflation spurt. And the Fed needs to jack up rates to five, six, seven, God forbid, Volcker-like levels at some point
1: over the next few years. As with so many other things, some tension between the structural and cyclical here. Robin Wigglesworth, U.S. Markets Editor, Sam Fleming, U.S. Economics Editor. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. And to our listeners, go to ft.com forward slash rate rise where you can follow all of our coverage of the Fed and next week's activity. Thanks so much for listening.
0: Hello, I'm John Authors, the uh, Chief Investment Commentator here at the FT, and I'm now going to have the privilege of talking to Andrew Ang, who these days is the head of Factor Investment at BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager. Previous to that, he's consulted to Norway's Sovereign Wealth Fund, uh, the world's largest asset owner. And he's also a professor at Columbia Business School. I should say in full disclosure before we start, I was a student doing my MBA at Columbia while he was on faculty. Regrettably, I never took his course. I'm told by many friends who did that it was really good. Andrew Yang, thank you very much for joining me today.
4: It's my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Now, let's start by trying to understand exactly what factor investing is. You have this fascinating analogy that factors are to investments what the nutrients are within food, that when you choose an investment, you should think of the factors within it in much the same way that you think about the nutrients within food in choosing your diet. What, what do you mean by that? How does this work?
4: Factors are broad, persistent drivers of returns. And I like the analogy that factors are to assets what nutrients are to food. When you want to eat a healthy diet, it's not the food label per se. You want to look through that food to the nutrients underneath. And similarly, when you want to invest well, we should look at the factor drivers rather than looking at asset class labels.
0: Okay, so we're not thinking in terms of equities or bonds, which is obviously the standard traditional way of doing so, take me through what the main factors are. Are these just the factors that were identified in equities by Farmer and French, or do we go beyond that?
4: Broad, persistent drivers of returns, we look first at macro drivers, intuitive things like inflation, real rates, growth. We also look within asset classes to investment styles. And there is, you you raised Farmer and French. And those are investment insights. We have value versus growth. We have things that are ascending versus things that are declining. We have high-quality stocks versus low-quality stocks. So those are also factor drivers too.
0: Now, when it comes to assessing, obviously, many of us are fascinated by the debate between active and passive management. BlackRock obviously has a lot of both kinds of management under under its roof. How does this affect the, uh, the active passive debate? What, what is a fair benchmark for an active manager once you understand the importance of factors?
4: And that's the fascinating debate now. As we go from a world of strict active versus passive, we're now morphing into something else where factors play a role. And they sit in between pure active and pure passive. And I like what you've done in many of your efforts, John, to focus on what's best for the investor in terms of costs, what I can do by myself or not. If I'm hiring someone else, does he or she add value? Mm. Factors here really empower the investor. We're giving back to the investor the control over drivers of return. And we can do that in very cheap, broad ways like ETFs. Or we can do that in discretionary, long-short mechanisms, total return products.
0: But either way, the point is that you can identify what it is that has caused active managers to outperform when active managers have outperformed, and you can produce it more cheaply if you understand what those drivers of return, those factors
4: were. That's absolutely correct. We can take what previously was only achievable by the investing elites, value versus growth, winners versus losers. And we've democratized that. We've actually now put into the hands of the everyday investor drivers of returns.
0: Okay. Now, obviously, most people tend to think in terms of stock. It's by far the best or most widely known and understood asset class among the general public. But this isn't just about equities. Could we talk for a while about this fascinating report that you did with a a couple of colleagues for Norway's sovereign wealth fund? vast asset owner. As I understand it, you have persuaded them to move away from uh, a traditional model of asset allocation based on asset classes towards one based on factors. Why did you recommend that? What exactly does this involve?
4: I've had the privilege of talking to Norway for some time. And uh, in 2008, together with Will Gertzman and Stephen Schaefer, we wrote a report that examined the active returns of the fund. That's the returns of the fund minus its benchmark. Right. And we found that a lot of those active losses during the financial crisis and the recovery subsequent to that could be explained by well-known systematic factors.
0: So let's get this right. They... they- they were beating the market or their benchmark quite nicely before the crash and actually underperformed it during the worst months of 08 and 09. Is that, is, is that right? Was that ultimately because they were catching factors that did well and then reversed during the worst months?
4: Yes. And a lot of that was actually unanticipated, at least by yeah. the general public, because those factor exposures weren't communicated beforehand. Had they actually been publicly known, It would have been possible that those losses could have been expected. Now, all of those factor exposures are entirely appropriate for Norway in the long run. Norway wants to harvest these factor risk premiums. They are compensations in the long run for bearing short-term risk. So
0: I guess specifically, they, they were exposed to value, right? They had a lot of stocks that looked as though they were cheap compared to their intrinsic value, which did horribly during the crash. I mean, it, presumably in the long run, that's a good good thing for them to be doing.
4: Credit, you want to provide liquidity, you want to sell insurance for volatility protection, all of those things.
0: Okay, now ha- let's try to understand, so we now have this fund which has whatever it is, $800 billion, some almost.
4: 1.5 plus times GDP, an right. enormous amount.
0: Yes, how do they... Um, How now do they go about choosing their asset allocation? Do they decide that there are particular factors they want to expose themselves to and then work out what that implies for each of the different asset classes they have? Does that drive their allocation between asset classes? How how does it work?
4: Norway is a factor investor, and the approach they've taken is unique to Norway. So they would start out with a largely market cap-weighted benchmark for equities and for bonds. And then within that asset class, they've decided on tilting towards certain factors. In equities, they at least tilt towards smaller stocks, which over the long run have higher returns than larger ones, and they tilt towards value. And you said before, as countless studies have demonstrated in a long track record, that stocks with lower prices relative to fundamentals tend to outperform. In fixed income, they tilt towards credit and duration.
0: Maybe we should start talking about duration risk at this point. Let's move to the very specifics of the situation we're in now. One great concern at the moment is that it's just possible the Fed might start to uh, raise rates this month, or certainly more plausibly by the end of this year. You would assume that this would have an effect on anybody who is using duration. In fact, uh, the raise in rates at this point is going to be that much uglier for long-duration assets. By definition, that they would be more affected. How does one, if, if you're trying to use a factor allocation model to deal with the risk of an imminent rate rise, how do you reflect that in your factor allocation? How does that affect your asset allocation?
4: So this is a great example where you don't want to look only at one particular asset class. Right. And it's a factor, it's a nutrient that affects many, many different asset classes. So if the Fed does raise rates between now and the end of the year, then it's not only treasuries that will be affected. It's investment grade. It's corporates. And beyond that, we have emerging. We have structured credit. We have agencies. We have mortgages. So we go from the nutrient to the foods. And we have to be prepared. And we can take on appropriate risk and appropriate precautions.
0: Now, does that mean out of interest? I mean, high-yield bonds obviously have higher credit risk, again, more or less by definition, they tend to be much shorter duration. Does that mean if you're taking this approach that you might counterintuitively be keener on high yield than one might think? How does that work its way out within the credit asset class?
4: Well, what we have to do is look at and consider each asset class and each fund or even security as a bundle of Hmm. different factors. And even talking about credit per se, that is quite an homogenous set of securities. Mm. So if we take credit, it's not only exposed to duration. As you said, there's credit risk in there. There's also a large dose of growth. And in certain times, particularly during down markets, a lot of high yield bonds tend to act very equity-like. Right. Again, we have to go from the nutrients to the foods.
0: Right. So you shouldn't be thinking of two different buckets equities and high yield you should be thinking of two of one bucket of relatively short duration assets and another bucket of relatively long duration assets
4: that's certainly true for duration and we can also look at that in terms of inflation and growth right. and liquidity and many other different types of factors
0: now could we perhaps talk about one of the other most important macro issues at the moment uh, that many people believe was the catalyst for the the sell-off we had during August, which is the loss of confidence in growth in in China. How, again, this is a fascinating, all-embracing issue that affects asset classes and securities across the world. Using your framework of factor allocation, how do you deal with this growing risk of disappointment, of a slowdown in China?
4: So the very first thing that we should do is have exposure to many different sources of factor risk Mm. premiums. Just like as we eat a healthy diet, we should have combinations, balanced combinations of nutrients. So let's have growth in our portfolio, which definitely China has been an epicenter of losses with growth-related assets. Not only equities, uh, emerging market debt and other things that have lots of large components of exposure to growth. So we should balance that. We should balance that across different factors. One factor that's recently performed very well is actually inflation. As inflation expectations have lowered, assets that have high exposure to inflation risk, like linkers, have actually rallied recently. So this is the importance that we need a diversified set of factor exposures.
0: And it's also utterly counterintuitive, but I suppose it's correct, isn't it? If inflation break-evens are going down, you want to be in inflation-linked securities as it happens.
4: So diversification yeah. is, is essential. The other thing that one ought to do is you have to take a stand on which factors are appropriate for you. So as you go into uh, setting a menu and you take different nutrient requirements, whether you're young or old or sick or healthy, you too should ask can I weather losses when those bad times due to growth come? Or maybe I actually can weather those losses better than the average person, and so therefore I can have an above-average allocation to growth and express that growth in a variety of different assets, all the way from Chinese equity to very safe and very large U.S. stocks.
0: The point remains constant. If you're Norway's government with $800 to play with, you have more of an ability to take long-term risk, illiquidity risk, and so on, than some 55-year-old guy with a 401k, that different attitudes to risk are appropriate for different people.
4: Just as different nutrient requirements are appropriate for different types of people.
0: Right. Toddlers need different amounts of milk from older people and so on. Now, could we talk briefly, the factors are being discussed widely. They also tend to be merged in the conversation with another concept which I know annoys some academics, which is smart beta. Bill Sharp told me he, the, the mere phrase smart beta made him feel definitionally sick. Is factor investing part of smart beta? How do you define it? Or is it, is it something interestingly different from this obviously very successful marketing phenomenon at the moment of offering people smart beta funds?
4: Smart beta is a form of factor investing. you will take exposures to broad drivers of returns and it's done in a format which is rules based, benchmark hugging or driven, often delivered in transparent low cost vehicles like ETFs those things with low turnover so it's a form if we want to have fewer constraints and we can open up to long short positions take on more risk, then eventually we get to enhanced type Products, total return products. Great. And some of those have been the purview of hedge funds and other alternatives. But there's a real spectrum across all of these. They all harvest broad drivers of returns.
0: Okay. Now, one final question which interests me. You're, you're now ensconced at BlackRock, obviously an extremely powerful company. What are the main ways you're applying these insights there? Is it to what you might call liquid alternatives to, to, uh, to uh, applying these into to long, short products? Or is it to applying them to cheap ETFs for the consumer markets or all of the above? Where, where do you see the greatest opportunities for a big mainstream asset manager like, like BlackRock?
4: Well, why I wake up in the morning and why I came to BlackRock is I want to empower investors. We take these proven return drivers, these broad, persistent, basic building blocks, and we're empowering investors to harvest them directly. So we want to commoditize them or optimize them where appropriate. And then part of my job is to evangelize them.
0: Good for you. And as as I continue to be an investment commentator, I presume, I trust that also part of your job would be to try to make sure that you don't charge your investors any more than you absolutely have to. For these, uh, for these products. Cost is always important.
4: And that, I think, is, is a very important outreach for smart beta. And when I say democratize and commoditize, uh, what we're doing is we're taking these proven investment insights and we're putting it into vehicles that are very represent very good value for everyday investors.
0: Okay, so to some extent, maybe you're the Jamie Oliver of finance. What you're aiming at here is some kind of a cost-effective, healthy alternative to what might be currently overpriced cuisine.
4: Oh, I love Jamie Oliver.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Andrew, thank you very much indeed. It's a very tasty diet that you've already provided for for Norway. Let's wish you great luck at Blackrock.
4: Thank you.
1: Hey everyone, this is Cardiff Garcia again, and that is all the time we have for today's show. Emilia Mahasik will be back next week with the follow-up segment. But in the meantime, you can always call us at 917-551-5012. Give us comments, suggestions, feedback, anything you got, or send us an email to alpha at ft.com, or if you prefer, I'm on Twitter at Cardiff Garcia. Keep in mind that we keep show notes with links and all kinds of other fun stuff, quotes, you name it, over at FT Alphaville. That's at ft.com forward slash Alphaville. So go there after each episode if you want to learn more about the topics of the episode. Thanks very much. This podcast is recorded, produced, edited by Amy Keene. There's nothing she can't do. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you here next week.
4: If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you might like to try our FT News podcasts, which focus on one of the main issues of the day and bring you the insights and expertise of our global network of journalists, as well as outside contributors. You can download these at ft.com slash podcasts
3: most days of the week.
2: Hold up.